As we look at our third installment here of the kingdom of God, and um, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody, this is a big subject. And last week we took full advantage of that big subject as we, as we looked at some different things. But this week we're looking at King Jesus the Messiah, and I have a reason why I've entitled it that, and we'll, we'll be getting into that. But just to kind of uh, review what we're talking about here, last week we looked at the history of the kingdom of God. And we saw from the Bible that God's kingdom wasn't just a bunch of random prophecies and events that were randomly patched together like a quilt over time. As a matter of fact, I found a quilt pattern that is not what the Bible prophecies are about. It's called the crazy quilt. Okay? Uh, yeah. Just so you know, this, this hurts my brain. Okay? Uh, I'm not sure if I could sleep under this. It just it would just like rattle me, all right? Uh, just all these random things. And, and sometimes I think that's the way people see the scriptures, where it's just kind of a bunch of events that are all stuck together. And what we looked at last week was that, no, there, there, is, there is a cadence. There is, there is a pace in the scriptures. There is a theme that goes through it. As a matter of fact, what we talked about here was th- th- that arrow, larger arrow representing all of scripture, including, obviously, what is the will and plan of God. But really what goes through that is what uh, Walter Kaiser, uh, an expert in Old Testament uh, studies, a theologian, he calls the promise plan. And that promise plan is ultimately King Jesus. And so that's why we're talking about the kingdom. And so we're, we're really kind of looking at the macro, the bigger picture of what God's word is all about, which is, you know, my, my, my issues the last several weeks have not been, uh, well, I'll just tell you, I, I've been struggling with the amount of scriptures to go through because really so much of it filters into this promised plan. Um, again, sometimes we just look at it in bits and pieces, but, but there is a flow to it, and it is all about God's kingdom. And so that's what we're looking at. So really, if we were to follow this quilt pattern, by the way, I, I used a sewing uh, reference not that long ago. I don't sew. I don't want to sew. I never probably will sew. Okay? So I don't know what the deal is, but I guess I'm just, you know, infatuated with people that can do that. You know what I mean? It's, but, but this is more of a quilt pattern if we were to have one of what the scriptures are all about. Yes, there's multiple things that go into it, but ultimately, it's about Christ the King. And so that's what we're all about. That's what we're going to be looking at. And so today, as we look at our, our uh, first point here, uh, Jesus, King of Kings. The first thing we're going to see here is that uh, Jesus is foretold. King Jesus foretold. So our first point under King Jesus, King of Kings, is actually part of our review from last week. And so if you missed last week, um, we're not going to be able to cover everything. There's a lot that we covered, but we're going to give you some scriptures and really just kind of read down through them and give you the high points. As part of our review, we need to remember the elements of God's promised plan. There was land, which you'll see in highlighted in green in some of the verses we'll be sharing, and that's a place to live. You'll see seed or offspring, which is in yellow, and that's the promised offspring or descendants. Um, One descendant in particular, 
obviously, Jesus Christ. Okay? And then you're going to see blessing, which we have in blue. Um, last week it was in purple, but it was hard to read, so I changed it to blue. And that's God's gracious benefits that he gives to us as a result of being in his kingdom. And so the first verse we're going to look at is how we saw Abraham receive a specific promise from God. And so, again, this is part of this promise plan that we're talking about, and, and this is primarily as we're looking in the Old Testament. So Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18 say, And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing. Well, we'll stop for a minute. What is that? It says, Have not withheld your son. This is when he was asked by God, told by God, to sacrifice this only son that he had that he waited for so long to give back to the Lord as a sacrifice. Now, no one else could or should ever require that, but if God did, you know, what would your response be? Well, another part in Scripture tells us that Abraham believed that God would restore his son to him, all right? So he believed all the way through all this. But here's what it says. You have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you and multiplying. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then we talked about, Abraham is included in this, but we talked about the rest of the patriarchs that inherited Abraham's blessing, that inherited really, that, that took on this same covenant, this promise from God. It was Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And so we see in the list here, Isaac, I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father in Genesis 26, to Jacob, and give you the blessing of Abraham, to you and your descendants with you, Genesis 28, and then to Judah, the scepter, right, this this continued lineage shall not depart from Judah. And it wasn't just lineage, it was a ruler, right? Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And that Shiloh is, is representing actually Christ who would be coming. So we see here, um, this all really is pretty much taking place in Genesis, and we see the patriarchs all receiving this. But then we have this significant jump to several generations to where this is reaffirmed and actually affirmed in a little bit different way to David, to the beloved king. And so in some selections from 2 Samuel 7, verse 8 says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. And they may dwell in, the, in a place of their own and, have, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. And we, we know that from the earlier part of 2 Samuel 7, there are other blessings that were mentioned there, but that's one of them. And verse 16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So let me just say this as clearly as I can regarding David. When God made his covenant, his promise to David, the Lord did make it specific to David. But those details did not change the original covenant that God made with Abraham. 
It was still following through, carrying through with that. This continued through the prophets who foretold the coming king. So since we are reviewing, I'm just going to look at one verse here, one passage out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23 Verses 5 through 8 say this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But, in other words, now they're going to say this, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where they had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So they're going to return, and they're going to have King Jesus over them. All of these contain the same elements that we talked about. This land, seed, and blessing. And one passage ties them all together in Matthew 1.17. This is the conclusion of the royal genealogy or earthly lineage of Jesus. So Abraham, David, and Jesus give us, uh, give us the individuals who represent the three main covenants between God and man. So look at this passage in Matthew 1.17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity of Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon, Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. So the three individuals that really mark out the history of, of the Jewish people are Abraham and David and Christ. So we know that Jesus is a part of this lineage, and that is what we're going to be looking at uh, today. That's all review. Uh, but hopefully it still plays into, obviously, everything that we're doing. But now we're going to look at, as we look at Jesus, King of Kings, we're going to look at Jesus, King Jesus fulfilled. We're going to start with um, when Christ came to this earth and took on flesh. And we're going to look at the, the gospel accounts. Matthew 1.1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen. So right from the beginning, we see the tie-in going back to where Jesus' lineage comes from. Uh, bringing forward then the promises. Bringing forward the same covenant. Now, we call... What Jesus brought is the new covenant. And it's new, not in the sense that God didn't make a covenant like it before, but it's, it's expanded. But that was also foretold, and we'll talk more about that. Next, we read Luke's account of Jesus asking how the Christ also was the son of David. It's a fascinating uh, uh, thing here where Jesus quoted Part of uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he 
this Lord than his, David's son, right? That, that'll melt your brain, okay? But, but that's exactly what happened. Christ came as the son of David, the descendant of David, but yet he created David and everything else. And so that is the mystery, that is the, the, the amazing reality of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Again, we saw right from his birth, here's where he's coming from. And now we see Jesus himself saying, what do you think? <laughs> right? And this, of course, is what really was troubling to those who were the most religious and the most knowledgeable. They couldn't get over this. And part of why they couldn't get over this is because they wanted to keep what they had. They did not want to acknowledge Jesus for who he was. Paul testifies then of Christ's kingship in Romans 1, right off the bat, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now look at this. And declared to be the son of God. So he gives us both parentages, so to speak. Both lineages. There's the earthly lineage from David, but then he's God's son. Not, not, that, not that he had a beginning, but that in position... He is the Son of God. And so then it says, with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So part of his power, part of his glory uh, ultimately comes from the fact that, that he rose from the dead. It's, 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 a, it's a reflection of that. And then lastly, we see really the bookend of Scripture here, the, the, the second bookend in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. So this is Jesus himself saying, because ultimately Revelation is a letter to the churches, right? This is what I want you to know. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So we see here now, and, and by the way, this is what I got to tell you. I told you I'm just dealing with a ton of information. It, it's a big book. And it's all about Christ. And so to try to figure out what to use, there are, in many of these things, there are five, ten, many more verses that we could quote, passages that we could read. We just don't have time for all of that. And it hurts, you know what I mean? But, but there's a lot here. But I hope that that is sufficient for you to understand that as we talk about Jesus, King of Kings, he was foretold, but he also fulfilled. And he fulfilled perfectly. So let me move on to the next subject here, which is the Messiah of the kingdom. The Messiah of the kingdom. We're now going to consider the title Messiah given to Jesus. Messiah means anointed or chosen one. To anoint means to apply oil either by rubbing or pouring, and it is done for several reasons. Now, again, this is the physical anointing. It was a symbolic way of setting things apart that were devoted to the Lord. For example, the tabernacle. And the articles that had to do with the worship of God were anointed with oil. There were accounts of priests and kings being anointed for service to the Lord. Anointing sometimes signified God's choosing of someone. 
A great example of that, an easy example, is when the Lord directed the prophet Samuel to go to Jesse's house and anoint David as the next king. If you remember, he goes through the first seven brothers, right? Is it him? Is it him? No, no, nope. Finally, we get to David, and then he anoints him with oil. So being anointed sometimes symbolized the enabling of the Holy Spirit. When people were anointed, it didn't change someone's character, but it did change their position. And here's a couple of examples of that. David describes Saul as God's anointed, even as King Saul was trying to kill him. Saul knew that David, too, was anointed, but David was waiting his time. Saul was trying to eliminate him. So for David, that meant that he refused to take Saul's life or even do him harm as Saul was pursuing him, even when he had the chance. And then we need to remember that David was God's anointed, but he committed some terrible sins as king. So anointing was a positional thing as well. Now, as we think about Christ, Christ the anointed or chosen one of God, this word Christ is used over 350 times in the New Testament. You can, you can understand. I mean, I think you may be surprised by that. But the vast majority of the time, it is used in reference for Jesus. Sometimes it's talking about a false Christ that we need to be concerned about. So that's obviously not about Jesus. But we need to keep in mind that every time it's used for Jesus in the, in the New Testament, it is declaring that he is the anointed one of God. So when we read Jesus is Christ, it declares he is chosen, set apart for service, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Those are all things that were characteristic of Christ. So let's look at the introductions of the, of the Synoptic Gospels again. This time, uh, but first, before we do that, I just want to clarify what synoptic means. Um, synoptic means a general overview or thorough observation or a similar or common view. Let me read that again. <laughs> synoptic means a general overview, a thorough observation, or a similar or common view. I want to give a plain English definition of the word synoptic as best I can. Um, I'm a pretty simple guy, so I, I think this will work. The first three Gospels record broad but detailed descriptions that mainly include the events involving the person and works of Jesus Christ the Lord. Okay? The exception there, obviously, is the book of John. His purpose was a little bit different. But these are simply descriptions, detailed descriptions, of who Jesus was and what he did. And they... they uh, almost many times align with the same events, the same stories, okay? They have some uniquenesses to them, but they're very similar. And so that's the idea. So now what I want to do here is as we do this, I want to insert the meanings of the son's name. I will do this for just a couple of pass for these passages and a couple more, you'll see it. So let's remind ourselves, Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua, Yeshua. We have already determined, and by the way, that means Jehovah is salvation. Okay? And we've already determined that Christ is Greek for Messiah, meaning anointed or chosen one. I might not have said the Greek part, but 
we, we remember that's anointed or chosen one. So it's the, it's the equivalent of Messiah. So now let's take a look at those Gospels again, introducing Jesus in that fashion. The book of the genealogy of Jehovah is salvation, the chosen one. Wow. The son of David, the son of Abraham. The beginning of the Gospel of Jehovah is salvation, the chosen one, the son of God. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is the anointed one, the Lord. Every time, every time we have a reference to Jesus Christ, it's the Christ. It's the anointed one. It's the chosen one, the one who's been set aside for a very specific purpose. Let's continue considering passages about the anointed or chosen one. First, we'll add an account from John's gospel. We want to leave him out. John 1, 15 through 17. John the baptizer bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. This is kind of like what Jesus said about David, right? <laughs> and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses. We read something similar to that already this morning. But grace and truth came through Jesus, the chosen one. As we look ahead, Psalm 132, and you can turn there if you would like. Psalm 132 does not record an author, but the language gives strong evidence that Solomon wrote this psalm to be sung at the dedication of the temple that he had built for the Lord when the Ark of the Covenant was moved from the tabernacle to the temple. So this was at the dedication of the temple when they were actually installing the Ark of the Covenant, which was obviously representative of God dwelling with them. So Psalm 132, let me read that for you. It says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty God of Jacob, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty God of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. And we're going to pause here for just a minute. What Solomon was basically saying here was this. David agonized over this. He wanted to do this. But we know that he was not given permission to do this. Instead, part of God's promise was, your son's going to do this. And so let's continue. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body, okay, your offspring, your descendant. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. 
There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Now, as, as we look at this, uh, obviously the psalm alludes to Solomon, but uh, as, as far as the anointed one, but clearly emphasizes the anointed one Messiah who was to come. The animal horn, sometimes a ram's horn, was symbolized power. And the lamp that we see there, or light, symbolized the continuation of David's kingdom through the anointed one to come. So in other words, part of this song prayer that, that, David, uh, that Solomon wrote for the dedication of the temple was to hearken back to the covenant that God had made with his father. And it was going to be perpetual. The prophet Daniel not only uses Messiah as a formal title, but also foretold the time frame God's chosen would come. So he's, he's telling us, okay, he's coming and he's going to come at this point, which is why uh, uh, one of the scriptures in the New Testament tells us that when the time was fulfilled, Christ came, right? So look at this, Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, okay? Again, that's both the anointed one, the chosen one, and then also giving us what? His royalty, right? There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, those, by the way, were representative of years, okay? We're not going to get into all that today, but you'll get the idea. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. So we see here that there is a evil prince that's going to come after Messiah has been cut off. So we even have the death of Christ being foretold by Daniel. But doesn't change the fact that he's the chosen one. He's the anointed one, and he is the prince, which obviously will be king. Jesus openly declared that he was the anointed one in Nazareth when he read from the scriptures. Check this out as he quotes Isaiah 61.1. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had uh, opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news, to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and re recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And this is, I love this part. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, whoa. <laughs> what was he doing there? He was declaring, I'm the anointed one. I'm the one that the Spirit of God is upon. What's interesting is that Jesus comforted and reassured John the Baptist with this same passage when he was in prison and, and soon to be executed. Now, here was John who said, 
Behold, here comes the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Right? He gave a similar statement. And we already read, he was before me. Right? But now he's here. And look at what Jesus said to his followers. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, about the works of God's chosen one, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one? Which really harkens back to what? Christ, right? Or do, you look, or do we look for another? Now, now folks, we, we, I've probably mentioned this before, but we can take a little bit of comfort from this. This is John the Baptist. And he's like, is it really you? I mean, I've lived my life for you. And I, I think he knew he was going to die. Is it you? And Jesus answered and said to them, what? This passage, Isaiah 61.1, and then probably some other ones inserted, but it says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. In other words, here's the evidence. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up from, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Wow. Now listen, that wasn't just some random phrase that John would have received to be like, um, okay. Right? No, he would have known exactly what Jesus was communicating to him because of what we had just read earlier. Right? He knew the word. We have an account in John 4 when Jesus plainly declared who he was to an immoral Samaritan woman. Now, I had planned to read this entire passage earlier in the service, but there's just too much. So let's just take a, a, a glimpse of the conversation that, that he had with the woman at the well. And some of us who maybe aren't even well-versed in the scriptures know about this story. So look at this. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah... Okay, the anointed one, is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, this was a longer way of Jesus saying, I am. He was declaring right there his godhood. He was saying, I am the self-existent one who am speaking to you. Wow. Now, that's when she pretty much left her water pot and went and told the village. It's interesting because later on in this passage, they said, we heard what you said, but now that we've talked to him, we believe he's the Christ. John also recorded Jesus praying out loud to his heavenly father, for his disciples to hear. And this was just prior to him departing this earth. And I want to give you a part of his prayer. Jesus said these things, then, then lifting his eyes to heaven. So in other words, he had already said some things to, him, to them. Now he's going to pray. Then lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the time has now come. Give glory to your son so that the son may give glory to you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all those whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, to have knowledge of you, the only true God, and of him who you have sent. And 
I inserted the words here, Jesus Christ, even Jehovah is salvation, the chosen one. Jesus said his own titles. He gave his own name. He knew who his name was, what his name was. He wanted his disciples to hear him say it. He was leaving. As he's praying, he's telling them through his prayer to his father, I am salvation and I am the chosen one. I'm fulfilling all of these things. So as we consider Jesus being the Christ of God, why are we doing that? It's because, you know, why did I insert this in here? It's because Jesus was chosen to be the king of the kingdom of God. He was the king. So if you kind of think of it as almost like a zipper action, you know, you have, you have the kingdom and king and lineage and all those other things going on. And then you have this concept, this idea of the chosen one. Well, they, they fit together just like they're zipped together. They, they, they run tandem. There's a slightly different message there, but it's really all the same thing flowing together, the same person. He's anointed as king. He's anointed because he's chosen. He's anointed because he's going to do all these things, but it's proving that he's king. He's the one who's set aside for this task to save his people from their sins to be a light to the nations. So now we think of, as we look at King Jesus, the Messiah, now you see the tie-in there. As we look at King Jesus again, the King of Kings, what I want to see now is King Jesus' reign, his reign. If we're going to have a kingdom, right, we need to have a couple of things. And the first one is a dominion. The dominion or the domain of Christ's kingdom. All kingdoms have a domain or a territory over which the king rules. If someone says, I'm a king and has no country, what are we going to say? Uh, no, you're not. <laughs> right? You, you got nothing. Right? You have, you have no domain, you have no territory, you have no authority over anything. So again, we go back to Daniel. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. So this is Christ coming to the Father. And they brought him near to him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. This, this was given to Christ after he had risen, after he had gone back to heaven, and this was the culmination of him receiving the kingdom based upon what he had done, based upon him fulfilling him being the chosen one. And then I want us to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This is the, a New Testament angle on this. Isn't it interesting too that Daniel's prophecy is in past tense? 
you know, as far as Daniel was concerned, as far as God's concerned, it's a done deal. It had to be completed, but it was a done deal. It was going to happen. So now we go to Ephesians 1. We're going to begin here at verse 15. Ephesians 1, verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks to you for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. So right now we're looking at all of the wonderful, amazing benefits of being in Christ, right? But now look at what it says. And remember where I'm at here. There we go. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This goes back to what Daniel just said. Now look at what it goes on to say. Because now it's about him. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things... All things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's a lot of alls there. There's a lot of everything's there. But what it comes down to is Christ is over everything. (laughs) It's all his. His dominion is everything. Nothing. No one accepted. But as we have seen and as we have already understood, along with that, there is a specific people, the people of Christ's kingdom. Now, his domain is over all, but there is a specific people that are his. The patriarchs looked ahead to this, and we actually see this in uh, Hebrews. Now, I'm shortening the passage just a little bit. So I'm going to start off by saying he's talking about Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. That covers just about everybody. We just missed Judah there, right? Abraham, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Isaac, and Jacob all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come from, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. These folks were his people because they had faith. David looked ahead to Christ. We've seen that in our previous study. The prophets, obviously, were looking ahead to Christ. We've read several passages related to that. But I believe that many examples of faith in Hebrews 11, which is kind of where we're at right now, represent the Old Testament saints who looked ahead to Christ. And we see that really encapsulated at the end of the passage. And I'm going to give you the first verse here is uh, verse 32. The, the, The first part of it says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me of, and he goes on to say, 
telling you about all these people. Like he starts with individuals and he just talks about groups of people. Okay. All Old Testament saints. And it goes on to say then in verse 39, and all of these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. It didn't happen yet. God having provided something better for us that they should be made perfect or complete, should not be made perfect or complete, apart from us. And that goes back to those prophecies that we saw. It goes back to the foretelling that we would become a part of the kingdom as well, the Gentiles. All people of faith. So they're looking ahead, waiting for Christ to come. But that is what they were doing. And I truly take God at his word and believe that the Old Testament saints were those who looked ahead to the place that he promised, to the person that he promised. Then, of course, there are us, the Gentiles. Um, first of all, the inclusion of, of the Gentiles into the kingdom was foretold. Hosea 2, 32, um, 23, sorry. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Boy, just a really small sentence here in the whole scope of scripture. But wow, isn't that amazing? And again, this goes back to the covenants that God made with Abraham, with his sons, with David. This is, this is what was going to happen. And now, and I've, I've colorized this next one here. We, we're looking at land, seed, and blessing again, right? Land is green, seed or descendant is yellow, and blue is blessing. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? There, there again we have. He's our master, he's our savior, and he's the chosen one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined, predetermined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. How are we accepted in Christ? It's by what God did through Christ. And then we can be in him. So as we conclude here, and I know that there's a lot there, um, and I am looking at the time today very carefully. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of things here. And um, I don't know if my slides are perfect, but I, I hope you understand what we're trying to accomplish here, okay? First off, we're going to look at the life of Abraham and that covenant, just to kind of bring things together. This was a unilateral covenant. In other words, it was one-sided. God said, I'm choosing you. You follow me, I'm choosing you. Abraham did not initially choose God, right? He responded to him in faith. There's a difference. God said, I'm making a covenant with you. It was an individual covenant, but was, it was also a promise to a nation, a nation descendants that would come. It was a forever covenant. 
and there was going to be a blessing to all nations as a result. Now, like I say, I think my slides are a little funky here, but we'll work at it. We have Abraham. Now we're going to talk about the covenant with David. That, too, was unilateral. God required nothing of David. That's why we saw David's response when he said, I'm nobody. You did this. You're doing this for me. Right? It was individual to him, and it, but it was also to his house and to his throne. So we have Abraham, which is a nation. Then we have David, who is one out of that nation, one out of that tribe. And it's his household that is going to carry on that Abrahamic covenant because through his seed is going to come the Messiah. His throne is forever, right? Christ sitting on it, the forever king, and it's going to be a blessing to the nations. So then we have Abraham, David, and then comes Christ. This too is a unilateral covenant promise. We do nothing. We do nothing to earn it. We do nothing to receive it. We are called. We are adopted. We are predestined. We are chosen by Him. His covenant, too, is an individual covenant, meaning that it's about Him. And it's about His throne, same as with David. It's a forever covenant, but the results are a blessing to all the nations. Why? Because he's following through with exactly what God promised to Abraham and what God promised to David. So God's redemptive covenant starts with Abraham, an individual, and it was in faith and by faith that he responded to the Lord. David, an individual, we know that for him, it was in faith, by faith, that he responded to the Lord. But then we have Jesus, right? When I say universal, I'm talking about his covenant is actually going outward, right? His is to all believers, and it's faith in him. We don't, we don't place our faith in Abraham. We don't place our faith in David. We place our faith in Christ. So the faith changes. It doesn't go outward for Christ. It comes inward. We're trusting in him. And I got a beautiful verse to share with you. Romans 1.17 For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Folks, there's a lot of people right through Abraham and David and ultimately even past Christ. But it was the same faith that was passed on it's the same faith, trusting in what God said. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we know that we're only just because of the justifier. We're only righteous because of the righteousness that we see we receive through Jesus Christ. And so we have here a couple of things to look at. I have them backwards. There's faith in Christ. The Old Testament people looked ahead to Jesus. The New Testament people look back to Jesus. Right? 
But it's all about faith in Christ. But let's go back to the other one. Redemption through Christ is outward. It goes back to the people of faith in the Old Testament. It made what they were believing in complete. Remember what that scripture told us? But the New Testament people, it moves forward from the time that Christ died, was buried and rose again. Now it is moving forward until we're done. Until Christ's work is complete. So the glorious central theme of all scripture is that the Father has made his son king over all kings. Folks, here's maybe a little surprise for some of us. The central theme of God's plan is not our salvation. Let me say it again. The central theme of God's plan is not our salvation. The central theme of God's plan is Christ the King, is his glory. However, (laughs) within God's amazing plan, he determined a specific people for his eternal kingdom. Because if you remember, you can't be a king without a domain. You can't be a king without people. So it's part of it, but it's not exclusively it. Christ is the plan. The Lord personally secured their citizenship, our citizenship, if we are his, by sending Jesus Christ, the servant king, to give his life for his own. Folks, wrap your mind around that. It's not that we deserved nothing. It's that we deserved everything evil. We deserved God's full complete eternal punishment because we willfully said nah i want to do things my way doesn't matter what your age was you were a sinner god sent the one who was over all things to give up everything so that we can in turn share everything with him We can't fathom that love, folks. We just have to take it by faith. And, and I know I'm being a little strong here, but how dare anybody say, I think I can make it on my own. I, I think that I can achieve the same righteousness that Christ would have given me by working my way there. (laughs) It's impossible. People of faith know that. They understand that. And they respond to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me leave you with one more verse. Passage, 2 Timothy 1, 9-10. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now, who is the center of this? It's Christ the King, right? But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news of who he is and what he has done. 
Come back, Lord. <laughs> Bring us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just simply sit before you and the word that you've given, your grace is overwhelming. Father, I'm sure I'm not stretching anything when I say that each and every one of us here, as, as we're hopefully joining our hearts together, would just simply confess to you, we're sorry, we're, we repent of the times when we're the ones who are trying to be the boss of our own world, when we're the ones who want to take back your dominion and go back to what just produced death our sinfulness. Lord, may this encourage us in a very practical way to place ourselves rightfully under your authority to mold our will to yours. Lord, sometimes the world tells us that we're just a bunch of drones, that we're just indoctrinated. The reality is everybody's indoctrinated. The question is, what's the indoctrination? We want to know you. Even as Paul said, he wanted to know you and the power of your resurrection. So Heavenly Father, we confess our sin. But we thank you that ultimately all of that has already been taken care of. Positionally, we are clean. We are righteous. And if we have placed our confidence in you, and today is the last day that we breathe, we will be in your presence and we will forever be with you. But Lord, I pray that we'll be warned if we have not placed ourselves under your authority as our Lord, if we have not received you as our Savior, and if we have not acknowledged you as the chosen one of God. We thank you for the great and glorious salvation that we have but if it's possible, we thank you even more for the great and glorious Savior who gave us this good news, who made it all possible. And that was all made possible, the Scriptures tell us, by you, the Father, giving him as a gift. An exchange of life for life. Not a fair exchange, but one that we so adore and appreciate so we give you the glory today but lord may we give you the glory in this next week in christ's name amen